so my, my, my partner's in here with me, right? And so he was asking about uh, Miss Harrington, right? He said, so what does she, her, Ella, can you explain that? Not only for him, but for an audience that may not know why you have those pronouns. Sure. You know, we have a lot of people who are in the LGBTQ plus community mm -hmm. um, who may be, you know, gendered. They may, they may have one gender uh, at birth but they may feel differently about their gender. Um, and they just may say, you know, I like to be called a different gender than necessarily. Now, obviously me sitting here, I'm cisgendered <laughs> straight. So, uh, but I like to, but I like to respect everyone's pronouns. And uh, I know people, they like to use the word, they might be female, but they like to use the word they or them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this is. In English, it's she and her, her the possessive. Ella is she on Espanol, and mm -hmm. Elle is she in French. So just, that's all. So Sheba Williams was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia. She is a Norfolk State University alumni with a bachelor's degree in business management. She has a professional license in cosmetology and barbering and is a master instructor. In 2012, Sheba began working exclusively as a mobile barber stylist, traveling to clients anywhere from DC to NC, meeting so many people from different walks of life and being actively involved in so many community service projects. Sheba found that more people that she realized had at least one thing in common with her, a felony conviction. Her passion for helping others be more than a conviction led to her founding a nonprofit, No Left Turns, in 2016. The organization was born to be a support system for those with justice and court involvement, but quickly evolved into a day-to-day -day fight for removing the policies and stigmas around a past conviction. Sheba sets on several boards to include Virginia Normal, Maggie Walker Community Land Trust, Richmond Black Restaurant Experience, Cannabis Equity Investment Board, Commonwealth Catholic Charities Housing Development Board, and she is the Henrico NAACP's Criminal Justice Chair. She is the owner of Styles by Sheba, the Institute of Forgiveness, and Sheba Williams Consulting. Most importantly, she is a mom of three young adults. Wonderful, wonderful bio. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Nothing but confetti going for both of you. Please believe it. It's like please getting riled up. Busy. <laughs> please, please believe it. Please believe it. Next, we have the beautiful, not that I'm biased or anything, Miss <laughs> Denise Harrington, who graduated from Hampton University in 1986 with a BS in music education and began my, her 16-year teaching career in the York County Division in Virginia. In 1993, she obtained an endorsement in applied linguistics, specifically in teaching English to speakers of other languages, and began working with English learners while continuing to teach music. After teaching 16 years in YCSD, she taught and in an entitled, excuse me, one school for 19, wait, I'm sorry, a title one school, I said entitled, like what? School for 19 years in Henrico County, Virginia. While she was there, High she- High poverty, conducted, 
Okay, get your flowers, Miss Denise. Okay, you, you let me know if I'm missing anything. Um, she conducted an action research obtaining $21,000 in grants and chaired mm. the PBIS team. She obtained her master's in administration and supervision and her master's in diagnostic reading with an emphasis on dyslexia and diverse learners. She also began her doctorate specializing in teacher leadership at Walden University, ABD, all but dis oh, I wasn't supposed to read that part. Throughout her career, she continues to be an advocate for children in public education and serve the Virginia Education Association in the following uh, capacities. Vice President of the York Education Association Board, member for two years of the Henrico Education Association, and the Executive Political Action Committee for 15 years. Also served for 15 years as a state legislative liaison for the Virginia Teaching English to speakers of other languages. Both experiences allowed her to lobby the Virginia General Assembly in Congress. At present, she is serving as the state director of the advocacy chair of the League of Women Voters of Virginia. Nice. She recently nice. graduated as a minority political institute leadership and Leadership Institute from Virginia Commonwealth University Doug Wilder School at Government's Grace E. Harris Leadership Institute, in which she submitted a team paper on the environmental justice aspect of flooding in Virginia. That is Miss Denise Harrington in a nutshell. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm not going to waste any time mm -hmm. uh, because I got a lot <laughs> that I want Go, to hear about. Um, I'm going to start with Sheba. I I heard you speak profoundly in front of legislators about the second look bill uh, that I think it was just passed in the Senate. Right. And going over to the house. Oh, beautiful. I mean, the job. This is this is a bill that everybody on, on, on here today is fighting for championing for. Um, but the thing about this is that you spoke from both sides of the spectrum, one of a victim and one of an advocate for a second chance. You said my grief is heavier, is, is heavy. My anger is real. My faith is stronger. Forgiveness mm -hmm. is for me. That was powerful in, in itself. Um, how do you how do you balance between those two positions, Chiba? And what advice would you give to someone that is in, in between those two positions that feel they have to make a choice? So we've been working on this bill for three years and um, my life, like my mm. friends, my family, my parents were arrested when I was 10 years old. My mom only did six months in jail, but she was released. But that record followed her forever. She passed in 2021. And at 63 years old, 30 years past, she still was being denied housing for that mm. record that happened in 1989. Um, but starting no left turns in 2016 because of the injustices that i saw with so many other people and in like full transparency i was wrongfully convicted of a crime in 2004 and have been living with that conviction for 20 years now but it did not impact me as much because i've been self-employed since 2009. Um, what i learned in my travels as a mobile barber was there were so many barriers for other people mm. but the the really big thing starting in probably about 2015 2016 um our, our family was experiencing loss after loss after loss mm. like we were like i've lost three nephews um 
my oldest nephew, I had to sit in court for 13 hours and listen to testimony and watch a tape of his homicide on, on a pole camera mm. footage. And the young man who killed my nephew, um, and my nephew was what you call a true victim. He did not do anything to contribute to his own demise. He just happened to be given a young man who was inebriated a ride and was sitting in his car and ended up getting shot seven times. But the other young man mm. was shot in the back. The guy who did it only got five years. Wow. And that was a moment where I had to say, yo, like I'm fighting, I'm fighting for people who do things like this, who cause harm. Um, where do, where do I stand? Hmm. And, you know, my family has always been strong in like their faith and uh, spirituality. And everybody says, I believe in second chances and forgiveness, but you actually got to walk that walk when it hits you right in the chest, when it comes right to home. And I feel like, um, you know, I lost my mom and my grandmother six months apart in 2021, but also we were experiencing 20 plus, uh, I can't, I can't even tell you the count now because it's still actively happening. Like we mm -hmm. literally uh, went to a funeral right that Saturday before the hearing in the house on January 31st. So we're still experiencing all these losses, mm -hmm. but I was angry and I was, I was, you know, feeling like I'm doing this work and these things I can't prevent. But if I sat in that anger and I didn't seek healing and forgiveness, then I really couldn't stay true to my work. And I know mm. that there are people inside and people who are also outside and been impacted by the systems who show up for me. There are people like when I get quiet, when I when I, you know, can't see uh, my foot in front of me. These people that we always hear are the worst of the worst. These people who have these so-called violent convictions are the people who surround me and, 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 you know, basically take care of me as far as like uplifting and supporting. And I even think about when we did the, the voting rights rally, when the uh, 3,400 people were purged, we put that together in 48 hours and we wow. got people that travel from all across the state. I'm talking about DC. We got somebody on a train from New York mm. because they believe in real redemption not not just saying it and making it a platform so um that's something I, I have to sit with and like even thinking back to 2021 when we advocated for abolishing the death penalty my childhood friend and her 15 year old son were killed november 18 2017 and i had to be one of the advocates who fought for ending the death penalty because yes it was a death penalty eligible case yes it was like hard and heavy but I also know the history of what this death penalty does in Virginia and how it gets it wrong a lot of times and how mm. it impacts black bodies way more than any other demographic. So, you know, I have to look at a whole picture when we're talking about this fight. And that's kind of where it came from. <laughs> like just, just being in tune with my own healing and being in a place on my healing journey where I can um, set aside emotions and think about the facts of what this whole system is, not just my personal grief. Mm. I, I want you to chime in on that, Miss Harrington, uh, because she gave a beautiful example of, yes, of personal, you know, it was it's personal for her, but a lot of women, a lot of men, a lot of people feel the way she feel and they don't know how to articulate themselves. So what would you say about that? Well, thanks for asking me that. And um, let me just let me just break it down. You know, I was taking some notes from what you were saying. I want to start back when you talked about the word system. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to your mother who could not rent an apartment. Remember when they started that stuff? So come on now. So what we're talking about is the need for expungement. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, if you, I always say, everybody knows this. 
Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Well, the people have done the time and then you want to keep punishing them forever. And this is just one way to do it is keep everything down there. We already, particularly in Richmond, we advocated for get rid of the box. So you don't have to check that box. Ooh, that I've served, you know, I had to serve time or something. But I'm talking about expungement. Um, you, I heard uh, you talk about a little bit about uh, marijuana and cannabis and things like that, just a little bit. And we've got people sitting up in prison 20 years for less than an ounce and all that. Records need to go. They need to be a sponge. They need to start fresh. But let's talk something else I heard you say. When you started talking about again with your mom, late mom situation, by the way, you have my condolences. Absolutely. When you talk about that, you're talking about the prison industrial complex. Mm. We had all these crazy things like mandatory sentencing. And so we had someone try to bring that back. I'm not going to say which senator tried to do it, but it was squashed because all it does is just fill up prisons. Mm -hmm. And when we look at second look legislation, we're talking about there's some people who were caught up in that whole system in the 1990s. And so you're sitting and watching, you know, we now have, you know, Miss Duvernay's, I call them the exonerated five, not Central Park five. And so we had that situation and I was just talking to a lawyer who lives in South Boston, Virginia, mm. about some criminal justice, or I call it criminal injustice issues. She was fresh out of law school and what she was talking about, how she had to go into Halifax County, you have to go into jails, you have to do this and do your intake and all of this. And a lot of lawyers don't wanna do it, but she was, she's African-American. And she's like, I'm going in there. So she was able to get some, so many things dismissed. And so people often don't have high quality court appointed attorneys. And then they try to make them just go ahead and take this and plea bargain. People are plea bargaining and they're becoming a felon. And it's their very first offense. And then we know about the sentencing guidelines for cocaine, which was more utilized by people who don't look like us from Caucasians versus a $10 rock of crack cocaine. And they're put in there forever, mm. practically. Or if they look like they were someplace near that. And people reform themselves. You know, there is data. I had brought some statistics, but I didn't want to get into the weeds with statistics. But people have reformed themselves that we have statistics over and over from the Brennan Center of Justice Sentencing Project about long, incredibly long sentences and what that does to a community taking a person out. You have to go back and reintegrate into society. Either you want to fully welcome them with voting rights and expungement because a person who is 18 and 19 years old is not the same when they're 36 years old mm -hmm. and almost 40. Come on now. We know that. So that's my, that's my, I mean, it's talking about making people, giving them an incentive. This whole business about abolish parole. That was another thing that was out there. And there was one congressman, the lone congressman in Virginia who was telling it like it was. And that was Congressman Bobby Scott. Mm. 
And he said, when we did that crazy abolish parole stuff, he said, guess how much it cost? He would give the cost. And he said, by the way, we could have opened a boys and girls club in every single city of Virginia. Wow. Now let's think about that. Wow. Let's look at crime prevention. The Legislative Black Caucus had designated $50 million for that, but a certain person in his budget called the governor gave it all the prosecutors. So what's the mindset there? Mm. So this is the kind of thing that um, when Sheba called it, this whole system, and then that leads me all the way back to convict leasing. Mm. Um, right mm. after slavery, and you know, in 1902, the whole thing about restoration, all that, keeping people from voting, all of that too. But I'm talking about they had these black codes. Well, if you're outside too long past 8 p.m., then we're going to throw you in, you know, and so on. And they're going to work you for free to death. So it's almost slavery again. And then here we go with people working to reform themselves. And they say, okay. We're going to lease you to a business. I was listening to um, another uh, criminal justice thing, and they basically were talking about uh, when people go out and work. We know when when people are incarcerated that they'll work them, but it's going to be like 15 cents, 25 cents an hour. But some people, they let them go. They did work for free. I call that slavery. Mm. And so we have to get past this. We have to say we want everybody to be productive, everybody, and there's you know systemic change that needs to happen. And and she was absolutely right. Wow, very informative. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you uh, for that. Uh, that leads me to this. Myself, very very ignorant. I'm from a small rural town. Uh, I lost my right to vote. I tell people I lost my right to vote before I gained the right to vote. And then on top of that, you know, Sheba as well as everybody else coming from those environments. I didn't think my vote counted anyway. I didn't care to know about legislation, which many of our people do not. And as we explained earlier today, uh, this year voting, we will have people that are voting for the first time from 18 to maybe 50 years old. Right. That it just have had their rights restored or they just came into. With that being said, um, I would like whoever would like to chime in first to explain the process of how a bill is written, how it is lobbied for, and then either how it's passed, tabled or scrapped. Can 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 somebody start that conversation, please? Oh, no. <laughs> so a lot of people think that the work starts at, in January when our general mm. assembly starts. It actually starts um, summertime, September, October. Like bills are being written year round. Uh, legislators who decide to carry a piece of legislation typically get the piece of legislation already like given to them. Sometimes it comes from an idea from people in the community. Sometimes it comes from more established organizations that have been doing this for a while. But like in our situation, we co-authored the second look bill, right? Um, we got the language from DC's IRA bill to address extreme sentencing in Virginia because we don't have parole. Uh, myself, some other victims, um, 
Sean Winnetter, he was with the Humanization Project at the time. He's now at ACLU, uh, Sisters in Prison Reform. Uh, we all got together and went through the language to make it fit for what Virginia's issues are. Mm -hmm. uh, then we took it to uh, a legislator. We shopped it around, which means that you go to different legislators and, and seek out their interest in carrying the legislation. Uh, the first couple of years, Chad Peterson carried, and I think Carrie Corner, who's a Republican, carried our bill. Um, session starts January every year. Some days it's a 45 year session, I'm mean, 45 day session, sorry. And on even years, it's a 60 day session, which is considered long, but it's always a part-time session. Mm. When the bill was put into LIS, which is the legislative information system, uh, that piece comes in and, and the people who work for LIS start to look at the code sections in Virginia that pertain to the bill that you're trying to get passed. They decide what, uh, what can be changed, what makes it like consistent with the current systems, what it's seeking to change in the, the current code. Uh, they make all of the technical adjustments and things like that. And if you ever go to a hearing, you see those attorneys on staff, Steve Benjamin in courts, Senate courts is like, a guru, but like each department has a uh, um, attorney or different staff that makes these changes and adjustments to make sure that it's consistent with the code. Um, then you start advocating. You start advocating. I won't even say then you start advocating. Sometimes you start advocating before the bill is actually written. Right. In our expungement bill, like we got a historic bill passed in 2021 that allowed for expungement for people with records for the first time ever to be passed in 2021. Doesn't take effect until 2025 because we found out that Virginia had never updated their computer systems. They were working mm. on a system mm -hmm. that's older than me. Um, they were working on a system older than MS-DOS, but we would not have found that out if we wouldn't have put in this legislation for expungement, right? Mm. Um, but we all got together before a piece of legislation was ever written. We got together during the pandemic, met every other Sunday. We still meet every other Sunday over Zoom to strategize around how we get people involved, how we get people educated, how we educate the legislators, how we meet with the legislators. So it takes a lot of work that goes into it before a bill is even put into a piece of paper. Mm. Um, once that bill is actually drafted and ready for um, legislation, it goes to uh, the House. Some, most times you have a House patron and a Senate patron. Sometimes you only have one patron and the bill has to make it through uh, each respective subcommittee before it goes to a full committee. It's assigned to a subcommittee based on like the content of the bill. Sometimes it's education, sometimes it's criminal justice, sometimes it's health, sometimes it's general laws. It just depends on the category that your bill is in. That has to be voted on and public testimony has to be taken a few times before it actually goes to a full committee. Then once it comes out of the respective committees, it goes to a full floor vote on whichever chamber it's in. It can be the Senate or the House. Senate uh, is moving at one pace. House is moving uh, simultaneously on their bills. Sometimes you got to run back and forth between floors to testify for the same bills. Um, mm -hmm. But you're still advocating. You're yep. still meeting with legislators. You're still meeting with people in the community. And what we see from a lot of bills, uh, our legislators will introduce a bill based on a constituent having a concern and they never talk to anybody else. Mm. And that is a sure way to get your bill killed if it's, you know, kind of crazy. Like we, we've seen a lot of times where a person says, oh, well, my constituent came and they had this concern, but it impacts thousands of people, if not mm. more, um, who oppose it. You know, so a lot of times it is beneficial for the people who are not just 
carrying the bill, but people who are actually putting forth that legislation to talk to others because nobody operates on an island or in a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. So it goes through all of the the, the uh, subcommittees. It can die at any point in the subcommittee. It can die mm-hmm. in appropriations, which means that there's a, a fiscal impact that says that this bill will cost this amount of money to implement. It can die there. It can die on a subcommittee when it first you know, hit the floor if people don't agree with it or people don't have understanding of it. But if it makes it all the way to the end um, of what we call crossover, that means that it passes out of the respective chamber that is that is in and then everybody in the Senate or House vote on it. Um, the very last step is it can die <laughs> on the full floor, uh, but we luckily had some bills that made it out. Second look was questionable because in the House, our bill was left in appropriations with no explanation. Mm. There was no, um, there was no, there wasn't even a hearing. It was left in appropriate. It was assigned to appropriations, wasn't heard. And if you look on the uh, legislative information system website, it says left in appropriations. So there was no room to like defend it. Um, but on the Senate side, uh, Cree Deeds, who's carrying the second look bill, um, advocated and got it through. We did. We did press conferences. We did lobby days. We have been talking to people in the community. We have partnered with uh, the Correctional Officers Union. We partnered with Virginia Sexual and Domestic Violence Action Alliance, who represents, they're one of the two organizations that represents uh, victim support services in the state. And they know that so many people who are victims also are criminalized for defending themselves in the system. And that was like what they really wanted to um, like harp on. Like a lot of people think that people just going to prison just for it. But nobody looks at root Mm. causes. Nobody looks at the reasons why people are going to prison. And they know that there are, you know, a good amount of people who are also victims who uh, enter the system. So we've been working in the community and the legislators are working on their end. And we still got to show up to testify. We still have to submit written comment. We still have to send emails and take action um, as the bill is going through. We work year round on this bill. Mm. So boom passed the Senate the other day. There is no House bill anymore. So crossover is when uh, each chamber finishes up hearing their bills on their side and they send it to the other side. Um, That happened January 12th. So now the bills will go through another cycle. 13, sorry. That's all right. Yeah, because days are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Now the bills are going through the same cycle all over again, but they're being uh, heard by different legislators. Uh, We still got to defend it. We still got to show up and testify. We still have to, like, make the public aware of what this bill really does, because we've seen some horrible press from the AG's office and things about victims not being consulted, victims not being heard. Mm -hmm. They, They have five victims who they're allowing to speak for everybody. And like you said, you listen to the testimony from a lot of us who are survivors and we were being silenced. We were mm. being disregarded in that. And there are a lot of, it wasn't just me. There were multiple victims and survivors who spoke in support of this bill because they have been able to, um, you know, find forgiveness in themselves, find grace in themselves. and. A lot of what that means is the bill goes over to the House side and has hearings and hopefully gets through to the full House uh, floor vote. Then it goes to the governor's desk. The governor has veto power. He has the ability to sign a bill into law, veto a bill, send a bill back with amendments that he thinks uh, should be done, or he can leave it unsigned and the bill goes into law anyway. I just, I just leave no. that here. <laughs> you said Those are the ditto. <laughs> ditto. I just wanted to, so with that in mind, everything she said and then some. 
And um, I'm just going to put my little two cents worth in um, because that is right. And but but there are a couple of key things that you said, Sheba, that I really want to talk about um, in the league. And it and I know and in a lot of community based organizations, it's the testimonies that really make the difference mm -hmm. um, and the pre lobbying before. I'm just going to call it what it is. We can say advocacy, but uh, it's the pre lobbying. It's and it starts really in the summertime where you go and um, you tell your legislator, hey, I want you, you know, this bill, I've had this situation. When you go through all of that still, you have to go through the process. And as you said, Division of Legislative Services, they're putting it all together, making it all pretty, and then it goes through that whole thing. The key point here that I want everybody to understand, testify at the subcommittee level. I can't say that enough. If you're new to this game, this is how it works. That subcommittee level, because if it gets out, you want to hear that at the end, move to report, which means that that bill is getting out of that subcommittee and going towards the full committee. Mm. And so that's where, and you know, now it's this year. I just want to bring up a few interesting little funkiness <laughs> that happened this year. People complained that the Senate was not taking uh, testimonies remotely. And of course they had to get that fixed, but the house on the other hand, and I want everybody who's listening to really understand if you want to testify in the house, it's so much easy. You know, remotely I'm talking about, you can sit at your desk or whatever. So if the bill is in one of these 8 AM or 7 AM or 7 30 AM committees and hint, just sign up to testify the night before. <laughs> before 12 midnight, okay? If it is, if you see something in the house and it says after the, the house meets, after session. So that's an afternoon. You can sign up to speak remotely by 12 p.m. And so that was, and it was like clockwork in the house. You can also post your comments uh, for or against and everyone can see your comments. Um, the only now the Senate, that's a whole nother animal. Hmm. It says 30 minutes before, <laughs> or 15 minutes before. And then this infamous yellow box comes on. And when the box comes on, you're just clicking and clicking because, you know, it's 30 minutes before. And then it says possibly 15 minutes before. And then you're clicking and clicking again. And the next thing you know, nothing happens. And a committee has started. Hmm. So at that point. This is what we call having every single email of those committee members. Mm. And what you do just to be on the, um, you know, preventative side, because I've done with the yellow box and clicking. What you do is the day before or the day of, you two, two things you can do. You can just send your email with your written testimony and it can be as long as you want it to every single member of that subcommittee, because every goal is to get these bills, good bills out of subcommittee so that it goes to the full committee. And so, um, so at that point, you have two choices in the Senate. So you have the Senate to them then, or you can call the clerk and send it to the clerk the day before. And the clerk makes sure, because a lot of you have seen them, 
and they're sitting and they're turning, things like that. They're reading your testimony for or against a bill. And that's what I, I just say, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry and go ahead and do that. And we've done that. We've done both things and I still testify um, in the Senate and they still have written copies of testimonies as well. Um, but every single member on that committee um, knows that. Hmm. So, um, and that's the safe side. You can do it for the house, but the house is so much easier to do your testimonies, but the house you can go on before and that night or the night before and then write, you know, a pose or whatever. And that's the key thing. So after that, of course, you're gonna follow it. Now, we're at February 13th crossover. Sunday, I believe there's a budget session that's even gonna go on. And, um, and the only thing we, I wanted to just add a little two cents worth is basically this. We noticed, and I, I saw something that I hadn't seen in years of my ever going down there being advocate, whatever. I saw someone's bill in the house get amended without their knowledge. And Ooh. I know who put the amendment in. And this was about an education bill, but I saw it. And the patron did not even know it had been amended. They had a substitute. And this was in, and then that brings me to the last thing I'm gonna say. Everybody just repeat after me, say money committees, okay? Money committees. That's right. And Sheba alluded to that. And I'm going to take it a little bit to the next. <laughs> People, when they want to kill a bill, oh, it won't just report out a subcommittee. They'll go to Senate finance or they'll go to House finance or the House appropriations committee. And it can sit and sit and sit. Mm. And sometimes <coughs> rules committee and it can sit and sit and sit. And so you want to, you don't, you do never, you never want to hear these three initials PBI on a good bill passed by indefinitely. That means it's effectively dead. PBI. And um, if you hear a pet PBI for a day, that means simply the patron couldn't come and present the bill. And so you can say, okay, I'll come back. <laughs> and I did that several times in the Senate a lot just because of the funkiness of trying to um, testify remotely. But those are just a few things that we're seeing right now. Um, here's where bills go to die in the money committees. Mm. And so you have to be diligent there and testify. And we did. We testified in uh, the, I didn't realize the House Appropriations it, uh, has a subcommittee on education or a subcommittee on this or that. And you make sure you're there for those subcommittees. And subscribe to all of those committees because you might not know where that bill is going to go because sometimes a bill will go here, then they'll refer it someplace else and they'll just keep referring. And each time that bill goes, if you're subscribed to those committees, you're going to know where that you bill is. You can always go to LIS, but sometimes it doesn't update as fast. But if you go to that General Assembly website and you subscribe to those committees, you will know where everything is going. So I just wanted to add that little two cents worth in. A, a really big thing that I want to point out that's new this year on the House side, when you do written comment on a bill, 
it now follows that bill through whichever committee it goes through. So you don't have to like keep writing the comment over and over again. Before this year, we used to have to write a comment at each subcommittee oh, yeah. level. I don't know what the senator's doing. I haven't seen written. I don't know. You gotta. You have to go on Virginia General Assembly website and look at the member listings to get the emails for any member that you're trying to find there. But on the House side, it's more efficient, where you can just do the um, follow the bill and put your comments. But you only have to do it once, whereas before we had to do it when it went to each committee. So um, that's a good thing where people don't have to, you know, spend that time making the comments or copying and pasting or whatever it is. But um, testimony is different in each chamber that that right. 30 to 15 minute link sometimes might be late sometimes might might not pop up but also what i want people to know about virtual testimony is sometimes you're not allowed to testify virtually if they run out of time there's a big thing about the time constraints depending on you know how many people in the room depending who chairs the committee whether or not they will hear virtual testimony um, if you are ever in queue to speak in virtual and they don't say or tell me um, we ran out of time we're not taking testimony or just say that you support the bill your name and your organization if you have one you can still send your testimony by email to each committee member if you ever get cut off or can't get your words out so just always keep that in mind yes and I forgot to mention that too and I'm just gonna say this and also even if you have a longer version of your um, testimony be prepared to just look at it and edit it um, when they put that timer up there, bloop, and you hear it going off one minute. Be be prepared to do. And then Sheba already said, sometimes you just have to say your name of who you are and the name of the organization and whether you support or oppose the bill. Mm -mm. Extremely informative. I love hearing you talk, Sheba. I love hearing Ms. Denise talk as well. And Sheba, when you were on the League's podcast and I was listening to your story, it was like I was feeling it as if I was living it, you know? And the two main things that stuck out to me, especially today, is one, you talked about healing. You took your pain and you turned it into something and you didn't let it define you. And that's huge. I hope you, I know you know, but just I hope you know truly that's hard a lot of people can't do that that could have crushed a lot of people and they could have just stayed where they were so and i said to you earlier sean um you know at first you're angry when you mm. start you know you're so angry because you're like why why does it have to be like this and this this and this but that anger doesn't get you anywhere you know so when you do that healing and you have that grace and that humility it changes the whole trajectory because then you're coming at it at a healed point of view, which means your emotions are out of it. And now you are thinking logically. Mm -mm. And like, let's say you're going to testify, right? And like, you're just an emotional wreck, you know, and you could have a, a sound reason to be, but like, they don't want to hear that. They only want to hear logic. They don't want to hear emotions. And it's quite sad. I've seen them, you know, the senators in the, in the, um, the delegates, I've seen them when people tell their testimonies. I'm like, dude, that should have hurt your heart. And they're just like, okay, next. Okay, next. You know, so you have to come about this in a logical way. And then you also spoke about the root cause. All this is about the root cause. And we can get to the root cause of anything and then acknowledge it. That's the key is acknowledging it. Then we can see what we can do to go to the next level as a collective to change this. And Miss Denise, you know, I just, I love you. 
you're like the best mentor ever. And you know, you know your stuff and every single time I'm around you, I'm just like, I learned so much, you know, because you've been doing this for so long and it's, it's an honor, true honor. Well, I, I appreciate that, but I just want to say this. A, it's time to pass that torch. Yeah, All right. I know. Um, and then B, I, you talked about healing and you brought me back to, um, and this is full circle. Um, I just wanted to say this. Let's we know what the root cause about is about systemic racism in our country and wanting to lock up predominantly people of color. But unfortunately, I always say racism is a gift that keeps on giving. So now they're locking up a lot of poorer whites as well, but um, and women of all ethnicities. But I want to talk about something. I just want to mention this when you said healing. Um, I was listening to a speaker. And he has a, a corrections ministry. And it was so excellent. He said, you know, there's some places when you go and you end up, you're never the same. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he said, y'all know where I'm going. It's, of course, on the battlefield. There's post-traumatic stress disorder, blah, blah, blah. He named some other place. But he finally talked about folks who've been incarcerated. And what I love about people who really get it, they took their pain and made it a passion mm -hmm. to make sure that no one else is either in the same predicament or to make more of a contribution to society than what some of the other people who've never been there, who can't talk about it, who could only, you know. And there's a program that I used to work with, and you've, a lot of you know, you've heard me talk about my own brother, and that won't shock you, my own brother, because uh, everybody knows a family member who had post-traumatic stress disorder from military experience and then in and out of jail and so on. And, you know, finally got out and then got a charge on him. And, you know, every so often they were like, oh, we're going to pick you up for this or we're going to do this and making fun and all of this. And now, you know, he's at a point in his life where now he's going to get some services, finally, and we're doing what we can do. But I want to I want to talk about something that a lot of people forget about the healing experience. Um, I used to be a volunteer at Central Virginia Unit Number Thirteen off of Courthouse Road, and um, I had my little volunteer card, and I would teach something called Prison Smart Stress Management and Rehabilitation Training. I did it with kids who were basically uh, school systems had given up on in New Orleans, right after Katrina, uh, urban places. And then I went into a woman's, you know, medium security facility and so on. And some of the ladies had come from Fuvana, if you know what I mean. Fuvana is a little, you had to do something really a little bit more to get in, locked up in there. But the ladies all talked about influences and different things, but it was all the systemic things that, you know, Sheba had brought up. And we have to do better in society than this. But a lot of the people whom I, I ran into someone who is now, you know, about to start a law school journey. And she hugged me and reminded me that I was one of the people who taught that stress management and rehabilitation training to her. And she is, was working in the public defendant office over in Norfolk. Um, and helped my brother get mm -hmm. the services he needed. So 
You never know when you do something to help somebody else in society, it also helps you too. Yeah. And I, I think kudos, but the trauma that some folks that everybody goes through, uh, we have to deal with that in, um, and that's a reentry program that's now a federal program as well. Stress management and rehabilitation. Prison smart is what it's called. But um, I think you all have alluded to really the systemic issue. Mm. You know, pardon me for one second, because I mean, y'all, listen, y'all going crazy with the information. And <laughs> this information is crazy. Um, talking about healing and y'all touched on a lot of things that, that touched me as a returning citizen and that healing process and, you know, getting uh, educated and things of that nature. Um, one of the things that I, I, I want to ask is uh, the only way to get your voting rights back is, of course, by the sitting governor. Correct. Um, mm -hmm. How does that constitutional amendment uh, look like you've been working on uh, to get changed? Shiva? What does that look like today? Today, it looks like we're going to 2025. However, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, right. I, it, that's right. People. is one thing that I really wanted to, to point out, because a lot of people think that um I am a seasoned advocate and I have been doing this work forever. I've only been doing it five years. Mm. And when I started the organization in 2016, I started volunteering at the governor's office with the uh, Secretary of Commonwealth, Kelly Thomason at the time. It may have been LeVar mm -hmm. Stoney, but he stepped down shortly after. And we got a call um, that the electoral board system was messing up. It wasn't all the way shut down yet. And this is October 16th, last day to get registered to vote in 2016. We had a big presidential election coming up. And uh, I had just, I got my votes, my voting rights reinstated in 2013 by Republican uh, Governor uh, McDonald. And ever since then, I've worked as an election worker. Uh, my mother also worked as an election worker. She also got her rights reinstated in 2013. And actually, and, and it's very ironic that she passed away on election day in 2021. She was supposed to go to Main Street Station to work. And my sister called me about 11 o'clock and said, hey, you talking to mom? Because we haven't heard from her. And I said, girl, we got to be up at 4 a.m. Ain't nobody answering no phone for y'all. You know, I didn't I didn't think anything yeah. of it. And I remember like this, well, last year, 2023, as we were fighting as we filed a lawsuit against the governor to change this process and take it out of the hands of one individual to get some transparency around the process. Um, it, it was November 1st. It was November 1st. It was the day before the anniversary of my mom's passing. And I said at the podium, I didn't know if I could be here today. Mm. I didn't know if I was prepared to be here because, you know, grief still is something that, that is forever. It is still something that's heavy. But I also said my mom would kick my tail if I didn't get up here and fight like mm. I'm supposed to fight for this process for mm -hmm. others. Um, this is something that was really important, like in our, our family. But like I started this journey because there was a breakdown in the system the last day to get registered to vote in 2016. And there was a whole fight. Like Governor McCullough wanted to expand the deadline by 72 hours. There were a lot of people who are also in this work who do restoration rights work who say, oh, everybody got the same 24 hours as everybody else. But that's not true. People mm -hmm. who did not find out that their rights had been reinstated until 3 p.m. the day of the last day to get elected, who lived in Franklin County, who did not have access to Internet because Internet in rural areas is, you know, few and far between, only had two hours. People who lived in the city who um, had to 11.59 p.m. to try to update their registration to get registered 
were getting kicked back out of the system. So there was a mayoral debate that night. I got out of the Altria Theater about 9 p.m. For some reason, you know, we didn't have reception in there, but my phone was going crazy. Mm. Um, I got home uh, probably about 9.30, had been trying to put in registrations up until midnight. And at 12.01, it accepted the registration and said, thank you for registering. You have missed this this election's deadline, but you'll be able to vote in the next deadline. And I mm. took a screenshot of that. I don't know why I took a screenshot of it, but I did. And the very next day, people were calling. I did my first ever like news interview that October 17th after that thing happened. So it was just a matter of me me knowing that there was a problem and needing to run my big mouth about it. I did not come into advocacy with any type of training, any type of support. I really was somebody who was like, there's something wrong and I need to speak about it and I'm not going to keep my mouth shut about it. And since then, I have like learned, I do an advocacy training program every month for different things. I do one for survivors for justice. I do one for faith leaders. I do one for returning citizens. I do a lot of them for returning citizens who want to get involved in advocacy. But I think for the first time this year, we're going to have to open it up to the general public who are allies. There are so many people who are uneducated about this process and how they can get involved. And a lot of people get intimidated. Um, mm. we, we've done lobby day trainings and a lot of people are afraid to speak because they look at their legislators like they sit on a pedestal. But we have to remind them they are everyday citizens Human just being. like everybody else. That work for so us. We, we send them there and we can send them back and vote yeah, them out. Absolutely. Um, so, so one big thing um, was a lot of people think that this is something that I've been doing for a long time. It has only been five years and it has been me and my big mouth for five years. And I have become somebody who is like sought out for a lot of policy things because I don't just have the lived experience, but I also do the research and mm. I know the history of this state. I know the history of mass incarceration. I know the history of housing. I know the history of healthcare because I worked at a hospital for 10 years against my free will. I know, you you know, I, I get into the numbers, the data and the education around it, but I also have experienced a lot of these things. The, the issue with barrier crimes and not being able to be hired for certain offenses is something that I experienced because I have a crime that's considered a moral turpitude crime, hmm. but I am probably one of the people best equipped to train people on Narcan use, which I am. I'm a revived trainer. Um, I'm a trainer of the trainers, actually. I've taught police officers and EMT staff how to distribute Narcan and how to recognize mm -hmm. an overdose mm -hmm. and things like that. But I cannot get hired and certified mm -hmm. in that field until mm. we change these barrier crime laws and there are bills going through now. So a lot of that comes from like the lived experience of people. Like we always look at degrees and yeah, Behold, you know, I got my, my degree, but that lived experience is just as valuable as a degree a whole lot of times. Going through things, the nuances of what I experienced, and, and I'll tell y'all another story, like with the expungement bill that we got passed in 2021, we've always had expungement. We've had expungement since 1977. The, the, book, the books have a law that says that if you were found not guilty of a crime, you're eligible for expungement. But what it is, you have to pay... $98 per charge in, in Richmond City, and the, the fee kind of varies depending on locality. You have to uh, do a petition. You have to request a hearing in front of a judge to ask permission to have something removed from your record that you have already been found not guilty of, and you have to be fingerprinted again. Well, mm -hmm. we were able to get the fingerprinting requirement removed because we surveyed so many people who are now who are eligible right now for expungement, having the thing removed from their record who said, I'm not going back into a police department. 
I'm not going into a police station to be fingerprinted again. And we know that our state uses a system called um, APHIS, which means that they keep your fingerprints on file if you are arrested for a felony offense. So why are we taking people through the trauma of going back into a police station? So in 2025, there will no longer be a requirement to get fingerprinted to get something sealed from your record just because we talked to people who had gone through this. My sister was arrested for a crime in 1999 that she was ultimately acquitted of, but she had to pay $98 per charge and be fingerprinted again and go back before a judge and ask permission to have something removed mm. that she was acquitted for and lost six months of her life and Chiba, six months away Chiba, from I, I have to ask you this question. How long <laughs> has that law been on the books where you, you, I, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you are found, quote, innocent, but yet to get it off your record, you've got to go back and be fingerprinted and all of that. How long has that been on the books? 1977. Hmm. And it was it was put on the books in 1977 because it was recognized. So the law used to say on LIS that we recognize that uh, conviction is a manifest injustice that causes people inability to be hired and housed, inability to volunteer for programs, inability to access services. They wrote these the, these things out in LIS, knowing what a conviction does to a person. They've since removed the language that talks about the barriers that people face. And if people don't know, there are 44,000 plus uh, barriers to any type of conviction after the conviction. Wow. Things like not being able to volunteer at your children's school or be an yeah. organ donor recipient. You can be, you can always donate organs, but if you have certain offenses, you may not be able to receive an organ mm. donation. Things like not being be able to live in certain public housing units or not being able to wait, go wait, to wait, wait. schools or be so coaches. So what, yeah. what if you're having a kidney or liver or whatever and people get on the transplant list you're telling oh, me you're gonna die. You committed a barrier crime that doesn't apply to you. That's most most things like homicide, rape, things like you know more more serious offenses. You may be denied an organ uh, donation because of those crimes, and it really does not matter how long. Because up until we got this bill passed, your felony was forever. Mm. And and even still, like we got this bill passed, it only applies to um, all misdemeanors, um, all lower level offenses and some class five, six and some unclassified felony convictions. And we fought really hard for that because the, the version of the bill that we were supporting that required people to not go through the petition process and not go through all of these ridiculous steps, um, I didn't qualify to have my record sealed. But it was more about like the the greater good. It was more about how many more people can get access to this ceiling bill and live a life where they are given opportunity because that's all it is. A felony a felony is economic terrorism. It mm. makes sure that mm. you live in Oh poverty. wait, wait, wait. Sure I can't let that go. Right. <laughs> I got to I can't y'all we that can't be on a sweatshirt. <laughs> economic <laughs> terrorism. You know I'm going I'll to make use sure that. That is it. Let's get it. Look, that is exactly what a felony conviction is. It sits you in a position where you have to scrape and fight for a lifetime of yes. economic prosperity. And and things are getting better now because we're fighting and we are recognizing that we have caused harm. But really, it is about capitalism. We, we talk about legalizing cannabis, right? They don't want to legalize cannabis and give social equity uh, applicants a chance. They want to make sure that they are able to get the proceeds from the money. But the 210 people who are still sitting in prison, 
um, for cannabis only offenses are not being given the opportunity to participate in a program that has been uh, put in place to make sure. And like my my position on the Can Cannabis Equity Reinvestment Board is supposed to make sure that that 30 percent that was codified in the original bill goes mm -hmm. to programs right. like K through 12 education, HBCUs, mm. recovery houses, reentry support and different things like that. But this administration has no interest in making sure that the programs that were divested from over the past 50 plus years where the war on drugs was prevalent and destroyed our communities does not get reinvestment. And well, that is a problem. Okay. So that is a problem. You, now okay, if I said the war on drugs, I cannot let this go. It was, I mean, from a certain age, y'all know what I'm going to say next. We already knew, I, I alluded, mentioned something about the truth in sentencing and the crack cocaine versus the co uh, powder, white powder. Okay. And I'm from the seventies. So I know all that's about some things and I'll leave that alone. But what I'm telling you is this, okay? Y'all know what I'm gonna say. I'm waiting for the CIA to apologize because I never saw a plane or chemistry factory in the hood. Hmm. Crack, cocaine, for those of you, y'all are certain age, you're young. If you can remember even Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. and Ronald Reagan, you know, Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs. Okay. But the war on drugs. And then here we go. What, what war on drugs when they have decided to go after crack cocaine. Now I was in college in the eighties and these people were coming to me from the Bronx and a good friend of mine would say, they got suits walking around and they're trying some new drug and it's turning everybody into drug addicts. And the first thing I said is, come on, is this the 1960s, the man again, or what's going on? None of us could have imagined how crack cocaine was gonna destroy whole communities. Mm. And even when you hear some folks who are famous now and their record companies were made through powder and crack, they talk about it, they have regrets. They said these these older ladies who served us cookies and served us, and then they were out there when they, they had their dogs after them and everything looking for a rock of crack cocaine that they dropped. That was created by the CIA to finance Reagan's war uh, in um, uh, Nicaragua against the Nicaraguan um, Sandinistas. They were more browner skin and indigenous, a little darker than me, people who had began to take over versus the more Blanco or more Caucasian whites in Nicaragua, Violeta Chomera, Chomera's government. And so she, you know, Congress said, no, we're not fund funding your wars. Well, guess where the money came from? Hmm. Black communities. And it was the first time we saw, and then, you know, I don't blame anybody. This is not a blaming game, but I do want that acknowledged. I want that a formal apology from the CIA because they did that because they thought they were going to stop communism on our doorstep. I understand that it was the Monroe Doctrine, a whole different mentality, but I'm old enough to remember. I went back to the place where I had my summers. You know, everybody had the summers with grand grandparents or great. And that's Berkeley section of Norfolk, Cloverdale section of Chesapeake. A lot of those houses were still there. 
But at one point they were all boarded up and people told me the neighborhood wasn't the same. Now it's come back. But what I'm telling you now is the systemic problem. Every time Sheba, you get to the root. I'm not playing now and we need real solutions. I know you mentioned espungement and I know you mentioned, but I know the, I'm old enough to know the root cause. And that's because the CIA dropped that and they took that money. Mm -hmm. They took that money and it fundled the war and the Electromedis government stayed uh, in power. And then they, you know, called the Sandinistas communists and all of this. And all they were doing, working class people trying to make more money, the uh, guaranteed education and things like that. But Reagan I is definitely when it started, because he was the one that started throwing out those euphemisms because he was like a whole actor back in his day. To me, Reagan and Trump are kind of the same. You know, because like they're both actors, but Reagan literally was an actor and he was the one that said, you know, what is that crack is whack and, and really putting it out there about black people. And then and once again, he's instilling fear when you instill fear inside into people. That's a whole game changer. That's how you can run and rule people. It's just and then you create a fake people. war on drugs. Yeah. So what called mandatory sentencing just locks them up. It's no difference than that in slavery and the mm -hmm. slave codes, and then convict leasing. It's no difference. We had a governor, Jim Gonmore or Gilmore, who basically said, oh, I, he advertised prison labor like this. I have people who get up every day, they dress themselves and they so you don't even have to do this. You don't have to pay, we come to Virginia and you can get this done and that done. And he's talking about prison labor. Mm. It's exploitation of people predominantly black, just like slavery. And I think we have to raise this awareness in all communities, particularly in the black community, and we can't give up hope. And that's what I think is what happened. When I, when I heard about people in the city say, hey, I could walk down my block, nothing, and then to shoot them up. You know, you get a movie like New Jack City, and even though that was over the top, it was trying to, where rap really first came from, people were doing their poetry. We have always, as Black people, had a way of expressing ourselves through our pain. And then now, of course, it became a style of music, and now everybody else is trying to co-opt it. But it really came from what was happening, and people were watching their wonderful communities die. Being poor was never a, a, poor, a sentence to us as Black people. We always overcame it. But then here comes the crack cocaine and then the fake war on drugs. And they just locked up so many people. And I so now, right. Well, we have to overcome that. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's important. You know, I think it's important to note that like everybody starts with the 1994 crime bill and, and Nixon and Reagan and even his wife, even that, you know, this is your, this is your, this is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Everybody remembers that, but nobody thinks about the things that were put in the code, like taking away federal highway funding. If we didn't lock up enough people for drugs, That's right. thinking about things like uh, taking away job training programs for 14 to 21 year olds. Taking a, leaving our minimum wage at seven twenty five mm. up until like the t recent years, like very mm -hmm. recent years, and there was fight about raising the minimum wage to thirteen fifty. People can't live off of thirteen fifty when rent is two thousand dollars a month for a one bedroom. Like all of these things happen in society. Well, feed their families. Intentional. 
It was, it was very intentional what yes. we're talking about. But like, like now we're coming to this coming to Jesus moment is what I call it, where we're saying uh, substance use disorder, substance use disorder is a public health crisis and we need to treat it as yes. such. And we do. But when my parents got arrested in 1999, who were my, my dad worked in Richmond Public Schools, my mom worked for a community based organization called RTAP, they got handcuffs. They were what we mm -hmm. call super thugs. They were the worst of the worst. And even my my right. dad, my dad got more time for uh, a robbery with no weapon and no one was hurt. He got 38 years. And mm -hmm. then the young man who killed my nephew, who got five years. So we really got to make this make sense. And when people talk about like second look and how we came up with this and how, you know, we're talking about extreme sentencing, that is the inconsistency that we're trying to address. Because nobody goes back and says, we got it wrong. We need to fix it. They say, oh, well. You know, that mm -hmm. happened in that moment and we know better now. We're going to move forward. But you can't leave those people behind that you have taken so much from. You've, you've taken from the community because if we, yes. we're looking at the real honest thing, we spend about $11,330 per student to teach in Richmond. But we spend 33000 to house an individual inside of Virginia Department of Corrections to the tune of $1.8 billion, would it wow. be, every uh -huh. year. Yeah. And they keep and then they were still exploiting them. With the profiteering, they were still exploiting them. We even think about Ridiculous. things like the fact that you pay a person who is inside of uh, DOC 28 cents to at, at most 80 cents for working for companies like Avis, Victoria's Secret, DMV. Mm -hmm. They make all of the state furniture and things like that. But when they come home, they can't work for these same companies that profit off of prison labor. We, we put all these right. trades in place. Barbering is the number one trade inside of the Department of Corrections. And you make sure that people have the ability to be self-employed. But if you come home to be on parole or probation, they consider self-employment not an, not an income. They consider it not being employable where they can actually monitor your work. So you have to go and work a W-2 job, even though you have been given the skill while you're inside of DOC. Right. All of these things are done by design. I want people to yes. understand, like, we didn't talk a whole lot about our voting rights thing. <laughs> and, and that is what the gist of it is. Taking away the right to vote for people who are formerly incarcerated was by design. It is not a public safety issue. It is no. racist at best. Period. It, it is a racist policy that dates back to well before our 1902 convention. It started because yes. when people were newly freed slaves, they had to find a way to make sure that they did not participate in democracy because as soon as people got the right to vote, more black people in the 1950s became uh, involved in politics than ever. And they had to make sure that people were taking, give, taking that right. Taking, that, taking away that right. Felony disenfranchisement is something that is based solely on racism and making sure that as many black people as possible could not participate in the process and is still prevalent today. They can call it whatever they want to call it. They can say it. We can call it voter it, suppression, voter oppression. But so we work it's we work really hard. The root, the root is let's keep, and it's not, I, I would say it's not just black people. Um, they don't now want the Latinos voting. I'm talking legal citizens. They do not want them voting. Um, in and, and, and it's a power structure. It keeps people in power and it's based off of greed um, and wanting to just keep things the way they were uh, and then keep them the way they are. And so what we have to do our part is not just voter registration, but we've got to go into these counties I'm familiar with um, Common Ground did that two years ago with their democracy centers. And uh, they went into every rural area, Halifax, 
County. Uh, they went into Nottaway, um, every little rural county you can think of, and they registered African-American voters. And this is why the turnout was, and, and they turned out, I have this, the stats um, somewhere and I could love this, I'll send it back to y'all. But when you see the stats of the people who voted that they registered, and this is, we have to do it all over again because somebody there is discouraging them and trying to make them feel like they their vote does not count. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and listen, to, to before we go, because getting in line with this right here, Sheba, you spoke about something when you were on um, their podcast, uh, Confessions from the Voting Booth, that is very important in the population that I, I direct my energy and attention to, which is the returning citizen. But you, what you said was a lot of people think that their right to vote is taken upon arrest, but actually it's not taken until conviction. And then you spoke about going in to the jails and getting people registered as well as an absentee vote. Please talk about that because that's something that I would like to do and advocate for uh, on the local level. So I'll tell you that it's a crazy process and it depends on the sheriffs in each locality. Every okay. sheriff has the ability to determine if they will allow this. Luckily, our sheriff in Henrico in Richmond um, agreed to this. Richmond was resisting at first, but then they realized that it is beneficial to make sure that these, and they, they have a legal right to still vote. The absentee ballot has to go through a process where it is not like destroyed when they're going through stamping and all of that stuff. They have to make sure that these people's absentee ballot are actually cast by the person who was on that ballot and get it back intact to the election board. Um, mm. So it takes a sheriff's willingness to do this because you can have an individual who is awaiting trial. And there are more people awaiting trial than a lot of people think who are inside of jails, but they are legally eligible to vote. Until that conviction happens, and, and let's just be clear, there are a lot of people who go to jail who are not found guilty, mm -hmm. period. Uh, the ability to vote, and, and depending on where you are in that moment in time, really depends on if that sheriff will agree to it. So we have been able to like send letters and have conversations with sheriffs. Not all of them are accepting to it. Not all of them are willing to do it, but these people absolutely have a right to vote. Now, there is a bill going through the General Assembly right now that addresses making sure that absentee ballot can be uh, provided for individuals who are legally eligible to vote while they are sitting in jails awaiting trials or what have you, or sitting on misdemeanor offenses. Um, but it's, there's no consistent process across the state. Hmm. It really has to do with like community building and having conversations with sheriffs and letting them know that civic engagement is a really big part of recidivism, keeping the recidivism rates down. Um, that's how we really got into having the conversation with some of the sheriffs that we work with. I'm I'm not going to say Chester Phil is doing it yet, but their sheriff is amazing. I'm pretty sure that he's open to it. Um, but it really determined it's really determined by the locality and the sheriffs who are in charge of the, those jails. And it really just takes a conversation and saying this is the benefit of allowing these people to participate in the process. Unfortunately, Virginia is one of now two states that um, take away a person's right when they're convicted of a crime. And we're trying to get that change with our constitutional amendment that will uh, take center stage in 2025, just like it has for the past 16 mm. or 17 or 18 years. Um, shout out to uh, the the 
amazing Yvonne Miller. Uh, that was her legacy before she passed. It and Senator Mamie mm -hmm. Locke carries it on. And she was honored on the uh, on the Senate floor this year for her hard work and trying to make sure that we got a constitutional amendment that lets you know how long this process has been happening. It started well before me. There are people whose shoulders I stand on who are giants in this work, but I continue mm. the fight because I believe that every individual who lives in this state has the ability and right to have their voice heard. Because if we think about people who are incarcerated, 95% of those people come home. They pay mm -hmm. taxes, they work, you want them to be That's outstanding right. citizens, but you don't want them to run for office, uh, sit on juries, vote, participate in the process and be no to Republic. And this is very important to making sure that people don't reoffend. It, yes. it is data shows that being able to fully participate makes you feel like a whole citizen again, and it reduces crime. So I keep fighting the fight and, you know, all of my partners, because it's not just me, it's a ton of us who are out here doing the work. Sorry, y'all, <laughs> doing the work. Right. Um, but it's really important that people know the power of their vote. A lot of people yeah. say, oh, I don't do that. I don't, especially people who have been incarcerated say, it doesn't do anything for me. But the first thing we hear from people who are incarcerated or put in handcuffs, because not everybody uh, is, is convicted, is help me get out. Mm. I can't help mm. you get out of there are not people in position who believe in second chances mm. and not just use it as a tagline and a slogan and say, I believe, I believe. There, the parole conversation, the second look conversation, the education conversation, the reproductive rights conversation, whatever it is you care about is tied into that vote. And I need people to understand that the reason they fight so hard to keep it from you is because it has so much power behind it. Mm. Mm. Exactly. Boom. I just I just want to chime in a little bit. Um, ditto to everything else, but I just wanted to give you the bill, HB 1330, Civil Actions and Felonies. Uh, we now have in Jawan Ward's uh, bill has advanced, which is going to be cross. It's already it's going to cross over, and it's about compelling those correctional officials um, and absentee ballots and not to throw them away. See what happens is. When we started going in, the League of Women Voters started going in and registering people in jail. So fine, we'll register them. And then we find out the absentee ballot, anything that's about to go into facility, um, the yeah, they, they, they destroy it because it was, could be contraband. I don't know how a piece of paper with a ballot, an absentee ballot could be contraband or whatever, but it's ridiculous. And they had just destroyed it. Well, now they can't do that. Now they have to, um, and I was, I had called the bill, it is Jawan Ward's bill 1330. HB 1330. HB 1330, thank you. And that's something to watch because it's gonna, it's crossing over. And um, I just wanted to say that, um, and then it's a whole process when you go, I always tell people take at least another person with you when you go in. I mean, if they, I don't, if you have the street cred, as we used to say, when Sheba walks in, people know who she is. But if you're not that well known, and even if you aren't, take two people with you, one to help out and reassure that person that you're there to help because a lot of people get locked up and they don't know who you are and, you know, trust and all of that. Build that trust. And don't just let that be the first time you step into, um, a place. You need to come in there. I don't care if it's Christmas time and you're 
setting up that they allow you to do Christmas trees or something. You know what I'm saying? Just build that trust and then talk to them. Remember, they didn't get there by osmosis. It's an entire system. Mm. They know they have to be responsible, but you don't have to preach to them or whatever. I was doing something within, in, um, with some correctional facility and I had to kick the counselor in the prison out because mm. he was you know, trying to shame and blame. And I said, no, this is not what this is about. And so things went smoothly. But what I'm telling you is everything that Sheba said and ditto, you go through it. It does depend on that. Um, and Candy, you know, you and I and other people, we're going to hit it in Williamsburg area. And Sheba, if you're ever in York County area again, I'm let through. us know. And, um, but we've got to get people to understand the relationship. And Sheba, you just said it, the relationship between politics even and their very lives. Mm -hmm. uh, it affects your minimum wage if you're working for minimum wage. It affects the air you breathe. Mm -hmm. It affects your ability to buy a car, you know, a consumer thing. Or uh, when somebody tried to come after a business, a business tried to come after my son um, and I and I and he went and he said, Mom, according to consumer law, so and so and so. I said, exactly. And of course, that we, we got to court way out in Spotsylvania County. OK. And um, the case was dismissed because we knew the law. But it's all politics. Um, and um, it affects everything that you do. So we have to make sure that people understand we're so busy having been downtrodden and everything else that we think we've given up hope. We have to keep hope alive. Yeah. And as long as there are people like Sheba and 10 minutes of truth <laughs> and candy and the rest of us out here, we have to just do our part in a community and make that difference. Cause you always got to keep it real and keep it at the grassroots level. It's good to have a big organization, an organization that's a hundred years old or whatever. That's good. But you got to get to the community where the people are and, and be sincere and provide that service. Cause that's Absolutely. what, that's what really counts and build that. Absolutely. Trust. Absolutely. Uh, with that said, um, Sheba, how can people contact you if they would like to volunteer, if they want to get information, if they want to donate, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, our organization is No Left Turns Inc. on all social media. No Left is spelling backwards. There's no extra T. Uh, turns is T-U-R-N-S and then I-N-C. Um, I am more active on social media than I am on keeping up with this website, but we always need volunteers to do virtual support. Um, we do a lot of research and contact of housing providers and employers who can become second chance partners that hire people right away or house people right away because the laws that are in place are not beneficial to people who are recently released. And that is our population, um, social media management. If you want to learn about advocacy, we do advocacy training starting after session every year. And we do it all the way up until November. Um, and, and it's for specific demographics. We'll post like the dates um, as it gets close to the end of session so that people can sign up and, and learn, learn this process. And, and there's one thing that I have to mention that we have not talked about. Do not get caught up in the hype of what the presidential election is. Your local elections are significantly Just more important. important than yeah. any presidential election because federal laws happen and they impact you. 
but there is nothing like city council, your Correct. your sheriffs. There's nothing mm-hmm. like the refer- referendums that are on these ballots. Our state associates, our, our state associates, our delegates and our senators are, are also important, but we still got to look at the local level because if you need a street right. light put up, if you need your schools to be fully funded, you have to talk to those people on the local level. A lot of people sit out those elections and things happen and are changed and you have no idea how it's because you did not yeah. show up. Absolutely. And all politics is local. Members. Absolutely. Yes. That, that is where Absolutely. the heart of it is. And if, if you really got a problem, you really got to start at home. Like that is really important. So um, No Left Turns Inc. on all social media. You can always get in touch with us. The website is also noleftturns.org. Um, N-O-L-E-F-T-U-R-N-S dot O-R-G. Um, happy to educate, happy to support. And, you know, if it's something that I could do with me and my big mouth and just being upset is absolutely something you can do, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Miss uh, Harrington. How can people get in touch with you and donate help? OK, so you you, you have several things. Um, my personal email, sometimes people write me personally, is uh, dharrington1619, OK, at Gmail. Dot com, And then my league email um, is advocacy at lwv-va.org. And then if you want to donate to us, because we are we are registering people in jail. Um, I have done gone in and done advocacy trainings at the grassroots level as well. But um, there's a whole lot of other things, too. Um, they can just go straight to lwv-va.org. And that's our state website. Thank goodness our new president um, has, um, we have a new website that we're building. That's great. And so it's gonna be more friendly um, after the session is over, truth be told. All right, I'm gonna add some more toolkits, like how to send that letter to your legislator, how to do this, how to do that. So it'll be, and it's open to anybody. You don't have to pay a dime. But we always accept donations, but it's open to everybody. LW-VA.org. Wonderful. Ladies, it has been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Very informative. So much knowledge to, um, I'm definitely gonna have to go back and and listen over and over again to, you know, gather all of this information. Uh, When I stop the recording, please stay in the room until it processes and uploads, please. Thank you guys so much. This has been Sean A. Boxdale from 10 Minutes of Truth collaborating with Candy Bradshaw, Miss Denise Harrington from the League of Women Voters, VA. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Sheba.